I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Simply put, this is one of the most powerful stories of love and loss that I've ever heard. Holly's husband was diagnosed with an incurable brain tumour when he was only 29 and tragically passed three years later. And it's hard because I can't actually watch those episodes now. The night before, so I'm filming, he's phoned me while I'm on set and I'm about to do these scenes where it's like really emotional. He told me that he'd had to get broke up in the middle of the night because he didn't trust that he wouldn't take his own life. So when I see those scenes now, I'm like really crying. Like they're real tears. In this episode, we had the privilege of sitting down with Holly and hear about this tragic yet extremely moving story. She tells us how she felt her husband's autism actually benefited their coming to terms with his terminal illness and how his unique attributes will never be forgotten by her and her two children. When Ross died, it was in the press a lot. All of the, you know, the the big nationals and everything, I don't know why it picked up or, you know, became such a, a big thing. This is without a doubt the most poignant interview we've ever done here on ADHD Chatter. Holly, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I was reading your story before we met, and I watched your um, incredible TED talk. I said to my, um, thank you. Said to my partner, "This is the most heartbreaking, but also the most uplifting and inspiring story." And I had to have you on to, to to share it. And I wanted to start probably at the beginning, and, and to ask you what memories you have of feeling different. So one of the things. And it's such, like, now it makes sense. But it's, it was such a big part of my, it's such a weird thing. And I've had my parents on it as well. But the school tights that you would wear, like the wool school tights, the thought of it now makes me itch. Like, just the thought of wearing them. But I would wear these tights to school. My mum my would put me in these tights. And um, I, just the, from the second they went on, I'd want to rip them off. And I would wait until the first time I was in the playground and I would get little stones and I would just rip them off. And then I would rip the tights off. And I'd say to the teacher, oh, I have to take the tights off now. So I would take the tights off. And then every day I would be coming home and my mum would be like, why, how would you keep falling? And I would say I fell over and I would just, and I knew I was lying, but I just hated the feel of them. Mm. And it was so like sensory stuff like that were a huge thing for me. But again, it wasn't the the time or the generation where we, it was just like, she just doesn't like tights. And it was, but it was like another level of like, I, you know, if somebody, um, a, 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 pet, a grandparent bought me a, a woolen jumper or someone knitted it or something. And I remember putting it on 
and like sitting, trying to stay really still in case it touched my skin. And it not being a little thing where I just didn't like it. Like it being such a horrible, like, like I wanted to peel my skin off kind of reaction. So I don't think that's that norm, like normal. You know, I don't think that's an experience that most people had. So there was a lot of sensory stuff like that. I always just felt like, I would often like say I'm like an alien. Like I, I knew that there was something different when I would do things. And even when I asked my, like my parents and stuff, like in retrospect, like when I was doing my ADHD diagnosis and stuff and I was asking them questions that you have to ask them, you know, can you fill in the gaps? And they were like, well, you just were a bit odd. Like, I don't know how to describe where we just thought that's just how she is. Mm. And I don't know how they like quantified that, but I always felt it. And I would be, there was things like, there was like a lot of disparity in my schooling. Anything where you could wing it or talk it out, mm. I would do really well. So I was always good at acting. I was always good at English, although handwriting would be really messy. Creative stuff, all in, like loved it. Anything creative, I would read really well and I would read a lot and it's interesting because as an adult, I struggle to read without movement. As a kid, I would be, you know, we didn't have access to phones and stuff. So there wasn't really much else. So I would read like excessively. And my mom, and this is something that I did not know until chatting about the, the diagnosis. But um, she said to me, oh, yeah, you would like read for hours and hours until you wet yourself when you were like eight or nine. And I was like, nobody thought that was weird. <laughs> Everyone was fine with that, were they? And she was like, yeah, we just thought you were just really into it. As I got like into secondary school, things changed for me in terms of doing professional acting. And I think for school, it was like, I guess it's probably quite uh, typical of ADHD people, but there was a big, like, it was like that, my schooling, like up or down, like on or off. Like I was really good. I was really bad. Uh, if I'm into it, I'm all in. If I'm not, it was that kind of feeling. So things like maths and sciences and anywhere where there was anything where you had to actually have an answer, mm. you couldn't guess the answer or you couldn't, you know, it wasn't due to interpretation. Um, then I would be really, really bad at it because I just couldn't do it. And there was no way that, I, no matter which way it was taught to me. I mean, my poor dad would sit down with me and try and explain maths to me. And it'd be like, X plus Y equals Z. And I'd be like, but why does it? And he was like, you don't need to understand. Mm. I'd be like, well, why does it need to be? Like, I'm trying to like unpick what maths is. And he'd be like, you just have to learn the rules. And I'm, mm. you know, as an ADHD person, somebody going, just learn the rules. You're like, I will not follow the rules. And no, thank you. So schooling was just really... Um, you know, up or down in terms of how I learned, but I got away with it because I wasn't disruptive. I wasn't naughty as such in school. Mm. You know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be good, and I could cram in a lot of stuff all at once and take enough boxes that I didn't annoy the teachers. So it was she's fine. Mm. And then when I was on TV and I missed a lot of school, it was just kind of. Well, it was kind of overlooked. It was just overlooked. I wasn't in, and looking back now, I can see it. I wasn't in places long enough for anyone to go, oh, that's a bit weird. I think, you know, in primary school, you've got one teacher, but you're in a fairly nurturing environment and you're little, so it doesn't really matter. In secondary school, from year seven, I was in and out of school. So I wasn't in one place long enough to kind of someone to go, oh, 
that feels like that doesn't quite fit with that. And so it was just internal, a lot of mm. it. And I, I just always felt like I was performing, like literally. You know, it doesn't shock me that I became an actor mm. because once I started acting, I had a script that I could follow and a character, even though that character was me, mm. that, that got a reaction that was this. If I do this, then I get this reaction. If I let this, you know, if I do the stuff I would do on my own, the weird stuff, it doesn't get a good reaction. So hide, like, you, you learn very young, hide all of that stuff quickly. Mm. And so I think, yeah, I just always had this sense and I, it's funny looking back because how, how do you quantify it sometimes? I just felt like I was always looking through this glass window that everybody, so like I imagined this glass window and, and everyone else is reacting to me, this version of me that I'm giving them. And they like it largely, or, or they don't, but, but they're reacting to this version that's acceptable. But internally, I'm behind this glass wall still, and I'm not connected with you at all. Mm. Like, you think you used to mask a lot when you were going through that stage? Yeah, huge, hugely. Like, just so much. I, I realised once I got to secondary school, all I wanted was to be popular and to mm. fit in and be like everybody else. And by about, yeah, eight or nine, I had perfected that, and I was in the popular group at school, whatever, you know, and, but I knew that wasn't, I knew I wasn't like anybody mm. in that group. Like I, I always knew, and I guess I always, again, I put it down to ambition and knowing what I wanted from being a young age. Like I knew from being nine or eight, nine, ten, I wanted to be an actress. I would write it down. I'm Holly and I'm an actress. I used to go to like, uh, I don't know, Planet Hollywood. And I would think Steven Spielberg would like just find my napkin mm. that said, I am Holly and I'm an actress. And then I'd put my home phone number on it, you know, just in case he was thinking, hmm, this napkin looks fantastic. Let me ring. <laughs> I knew so much what I wanted to do and be that I think when I felt those feelings of I don't fit in, I kind of put it down to, well, maybe it's because I don't want to just live here all my life and do this. And I've got bigger goals and dreams. But it was more than that. Like it, across the board, there was just something that it made it set me apart and and I don't mean that in an egotistical way that I thought I was better because I definitely did not think that mm. I just knew that that wasn't I didn't have the same it wasn't going to be the same for me I, and so the masking thing for sure and I know a lot of teenagers will you know try and fit in that's quite normal but it was um I think I was very aware of it I was aware I was doing it mm. I was aware I was hiding stuff that were more me and and then just trying to portray a certain version of me outside of the house and outside, you know, just outside of my own head. Mm. You've got you've got two daughters, Brooke and yeah. Texas. Do you see that masking behavior in, in them? So Brooke, my oldest, is autistic. She's uh she was diagnosed when she was 12. Um her dad was autistic, and um my youngest is as far as we know, neurotypical, but we um from being young, I've unintentionally kind of helped Brooke particularly mask. So I taught her all I knew. I mean, I, when, you know, when she was really little, I wasn't diagnosed. So I didn't know any different. She's my first child. Mm. I would go through conversations and social stuff with her and I would get her to act out and what she would do and how she would chat to people and things like that. And so actually when she was going through the process of diagnosis they actually said, you've helped her mask, which in some respect 
is helpful in that she passes in a lot of spaces and she's socially very confident. But in other ways, it masks the fact that she's having to do a lot of work to do that. And she, you know, on the surface, it looks easy for her, but that's also part of the performance. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think I have. And, and I'm not saying it's necessarily all bad that I've done that because I've made it that she's able to have, you know, she's confident she can hold conversations. But, yeah, I guess there's some negatives in that. I mean, we talk about it, so she does know. So maybe there's there's benefit in the fact that it's it's a fun, like, joke that we will have. We know that we're doing it. Mm. I mean, we have my, my youngest, when I drop her off at school, there's a one that we do every day. So when we come in the teacher stands at the gate and they say good morning, right? And I make such a big deal out of this because I'm like, how am I? Okay, I'm ready to, I mean, she, she laughs at me now because I'm like, right, I'm ready, Texas. I'm going to keep my face happy, right? So we're going in. Good morning. I'm like, am I saying it right? Like, is it, was that too quick? Or good morning. Hi. I, I don't, what am I going to do? Like, I don't know. And then she, she says, I, she says, you drop your face too quickly. So she says that I walk a few steps. I go, Hi. <laughs> she's like mommy no they, they're fit and she'll go keep it longer keep it <laughs> and she's like so there's like loads of like things like that which are silly masking things they're mm. not you know they're not big deal things but yeah I think with the girls we we talk a lot about this stuff you know in my household we've got th- currently three different brain types as far as we know we've got an autistic ADHD neurotypical and I'm like this is like a little microcosm of the world so no excuses, reasons for sure. Mm. But we've got to get on with each other. We've all got to find a route and we've got to be understanding. So if we talk about our stuff, we can help each other. Uh, we can be understanding. Um, but it's not an excuse for just, you know, I can do what I want because of X, Y, and Z diagnosis or mm. not. Like it doesn't work that way. So in some respects, that's quite nice that we have those conversations. We're able to kind of talk through solutions in our house and, the girls are very good with me. Like, I mean, when you've got kids, they get so much paperwork from school. There's so much to do. It's ridiculous. So I'm, I will say to them, don't hand me uh, a form to sign on the way back from school because I will put it in a pocket or a bag or drop it on the floor. I will, you will never see it again. I won't have any conscious awareness that I did that. So we now have, when you come in, you hand it to me on our kitchen island and you hand me a pen, I will sign it, I will give it back to you and you put it back as your responsibility, you put it back in your bag, then it's done. But if you hand it to me before then, who knows where it will go? I won't remember, I won't even be consciously aware of it. So as silly as that is, we've created loads of little things like that. Or like when Texas, if there's someone walking slowly, which obviously drives me to mm. distraction, if someone, we're getting out of school and there's a queue and people are just sauntering which is why people saunter and why aren't they just getting to where they they need to be she my daughter texas will run between them and go mom like and i'll go i'm so sorry and i like then can push through legitimately and i'm so sorry it's my daughter's texas um so that helps me get through all of the the people that are walking too slowly because she (laughs) senses that i'm getting irritated because they're walking too slow the worst isn't it slow walking people oh my god what, what, why aren't they in a hurry? <laughs> why do they not have an internal spring that makes them hurry up? I, I don't know. Like, I'm always running. I don't know. If, do you run places for no reason? Or is that just, I mean, I actually literally run. 
Sometimes a speed walk around supermarkets, and when mm. when you when you're on a mission to get that pasta and that pesto, and then someone's like blocking the aisle or a slow person, it's almost like it breaks the mini hyper focus because you focus so much on like that dopamine hunt just of that get, food. Yeah, just get and the something's pasta. blocking you away from getting there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, I get that. Like I've always said that. I mean, I've sprained both my ankles like mm. more like a lot, and that is because I'm running. And I really did feel like it was like. Like my like the universe going slow down. We will take you down if you. But I'm just running, and there's not even like a sense to it. I just would rather get there and mm. get the whatever I'm doing. I'd rather get there really fast, and then I don't know. Again, it, it might just be mm. like that dopamine. I want to get to the thing and then be, then move on to the next thing. Do you do you relate at all to any of the autistic traits? Yeah, I'm. Um, I think so. I think there's a lot of crossover, isn't there? Mm. And there's so. It's that blurry, I guess the sensory stuff I really get. Um, my daughter, we, we do, we talk about this because when she was first, you know, looking to be diagnosed, we didn't know which way to point the car. We were, you know, just assessing, you know, what's going on here? Is this grief? Is this anxiety? Is mm. this autism, ADHD? You know, is it a concoction, a, a perfect storm kind of thing? So we were looking at all and we were talking about how we process things. And there's definitely things that, we relate to definitely the sensory experience like the noise thing um although what's really hard is that sometimes my autistic daughter's uh like stims that help her to relax like humming or singing or loud noise mm. will set me off like really bad into a rage so there are days when I can feel I'm more heightened to that and I just have to wear headphones and I'm like you just have to not like I, I need to not hear that noise that you're making or she'll like high-pitched scream and she wants that sound in that moment and I'm hating it so sometimes I will one of the things that I do that really annoys her and it's not an autistic experience is they're like I like surprise things <laughs> like yay it's a surprise and before she was diagnosed I would always be like doing things like let's go to Brighton let's go to let's go today let's go now pack the car and she would freak because she needs the planning mm. Whereas I don't need that. Um, I need, well, I say I don't, I don't, I do need some planning, but not in the same way as she does. Like she needs to know each and every single thing that's going to happen. That's not an experience that I have. I could just like run out and work it out. I just, I always think I do things fast and I do it impulsively. Mm. Nine times out of a 10, I trust I'll, it'll do, it'll be all right. Trust the process. Yeah. The 10th time's a mess. The ten, the one when I don't get it right is an absolute mess. Like I've, I've ruined something. I've gone, I've signed up to something. I've done something. Like it's a mess. So it's like that Russian roulette. But again, maybe that's kind of a dopamine thing as well. Like I could really research it, like someone who's autistic or who's neurotypical, and and really look at this. Or mm. I could just chance it, see what happens. And most of the time, it'll be all right sometimes it will not be and yeah so no I think there's definitely a crossover I think probably for me it's mostly sensory um we do we yeah I'm not sure how because you find that you you sit on that cusp don't you of autism ADHD and what are the what are the things that you relate to with uh, autism definitely the sensory but mm. definitely with materials like I, I can't yeah. wear cotton jumpers oh, I okay. thought of yeah just just the texture and microfiber cloths. Mm. Um, oh, I can see that. That's like, a weird texture. I always wonder why. I know people may you know make your teeth go on end and scraping cutlery against the plate, but for me with cotton, it's, it's quite severe. Mm. Um, the thought of 
pulling cotton apart, cotton wool. I can't have cotton wool in my hand. Yeah, Brooke won't do that either. She won't touch wood. Mm. Wood is her thing. She just, and that is quite, like, it's quite extreme. And it's upsetting for Mm. us sometimes. We did, um, we did pantomime at Christmas. We were all in a a pantomime and um, the director asked her to haul, and she wants to be an actor. So she can really, really, she says, like, I'm fully, like, masked. Like, I can totally hide everything Mm. when I'm acting because I love it so much. And the director asked her to hold this wooden thing up. And she really, really wanted to do it because it was a, like, extra part. Mm. And she came out and I just, she'd done it. And she came out to me and she was, like, like in panic mode. Like, there's, there's splinters in my hands. There's, like, it's awful, it's awful. Like, and it, that was quite hard because she really wanted, like, she wanted to do it. But that experience for her was just too much. Interesting you said the clash between the ADHD traits and the autistic traits with yourself and your daughter mm. and... Are you happy to talk about Ross? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was yeah. autistic. Yeah, so my husband Ross was autistic. And I always have to be really, because I, I say my husband was autistic mm. and then people are like, he didn't get over his autism, like, like on some kind of weird cure camp or something. Um, but he's, he died. So um, yeah, he was diagnosed as an adult as well. And not, it wasn't, it's always, it's interesting now because it wasn't this era where we're talking about this stuff. Mm. He was 25, 26 when he was diagnosed. And it was, even with his diagnosis, there was real lack of understanding of it. A lot the the we would get, it's, um, it's not a, it's not an excuse for bad behavior is what we would get a lot. I'm like, well, no, but it is a reason for some of it. Mm. Like it, it's not an excuse, but when we understand, we can see how somebody came to that, you know, point. So when he was diagnosed, it was, I noticed a disconnect and I had really basic understanding of autism at the time, you know, really basic. And he was doing some things and it was things like he would want to help people out, but his way of doing it, I could see was stressing him out and he was annoying them and he was upsetting people. And then he would explain his process to me. And I, there was a, there was a a disconnect with it. And I was Mm. thinking that's there's something there was just something there and then we started to look at it um and we were like this is like everything that we're reading is you like this is you um and we didn't we just kind of in the house were like doing the whole well we'll just self-diagnose and you can just we'll work with it and we, we will understand it as a couple and all that and it was um and I, you know it was we were at it was my wedding it was our wedding party and everyone was getting up and doing daft speeches because we, you know, we, we'd had this party like six months after getting married. And his cousin made a joke, and it was just a joke, and it was not no intent or anything bad in it. But it was Holly's done um, casualty a few times, and now she's diagnosed Ross with autism. Mm. And it went down like a lead balloon for me and Ross. Everyone else laughed heartily, but we were like, "Yeah, it's not funny. It's actually not funny for us." And a few days after that, we paid to go and get him assessed because we were like. We had made that thing, but it was actually everybody else that needed the diagnosis. And so we went and we, I found it fascinating. It's really interesting being in that the thing. And one of the things that she showed him all these different sets of eyes and I was in there so, sort of seeing what I, you know, thinking what I would do. Mm. And she was saying, what did, what are the emotions on these eyes? And so I'm going through it and I'm thinking, oh, he's, he's actually done all right. Like I can't see what he's massively done. A couple of them I wouldn't have done, but wasn't like that bad and then she said at the end of it she said so the reason we do that it's not so much can you recognize the emotion it's the time it takes you to recognize the emotion 
She said it would take a neurotypical woman approximately one minute to do what you've done in 10. And I was like, oh. She said, you don't get 10 minutes to work out somebody's emotion. Mm. You don't get 10 minutes to notice that slight signal that you're missing, that social cue. And so we began to understand like how he was, yeah, like how he was upsetting everyone all the time. But he was very confident. Mm. And as an actor, and as an actor with ADHD, I'm like, this is hilarious. He's so much fun. Like he says things that's so inappropriate. And we just laughed our heads off the whole time. And, and, you know, looking back now, I'm like, I can see we really complimented each other. He was like obsessed with research. He would, he was really good at maths. So that was helpful. Uh, He once said to me, I can't wait till I'm old so I can really sit down and read the instructions to the oven. To the oven. (laughs) I can't think of anything Mm. more boring in the world. So it was actually quite useful. Like he would spend like days researching wallets. He once bought, I think it was like 50 wallets to trial them. To trial the wallets. I mean, it's the, everyone got it in the end because it was fantastic. It was an amazing wallet. Mm. But like that to me, like my brain couldn't cope with that level of like research on something. So we complemented each other quite well. Um, and it's, yeah, it's funny like looking now at, because he's he's not here, it's interesting seeing the genetics in, the, in my daughters mm. and some of the things, you know, looking back on his schooling, and how that impacts school for him, like he was seen as naughty at school uh, because he he just wanted to tell them how to do it better, how to run the school better, how to run the lessons better, um, and he would say whatever he thought. And I see some of the same challenges with my oldest daughter. Like I, I can see them, and thankfully she's in a world where there's a level more of understanding. It's not quite there, but mm. it's it's definitely better. And I always wonder what he would think now. You know, now it's people are more open talking about having ADHD or mm. autism. I think he'd, I mean, he'd love it. Where did you find out Ross was unwell? So we found out, um, so it was 2014, and he had been experiencing real um, bouts of depressive episodes. We had two kids by the, like really little they were just like so Brooke would have been nearly three text texts were nearly one one and two maybe mm. one and three and um yeah he'd he started to have headaches and what we then found out were focal seizures but the way they so focal seizures like where one part of your body kind of seizes up but the way it kind of for him was in his hand and it he would get a wave of panic like a panic attack and then his hand would grip, like, 10 seconds. And he would go, Holly, and I'd, like, look at him. And I would, I would just, like, peel his hand off whatever was it was stuck on. And that was about a year of that. We did go to the, the doctor, and what he was describing sounded like a panic attack. So they, and because he was having these feelings of anxiety and, like, depression, they just were like, well, it's probably mental health related. You know, he was 20, how old was he? 29 when he was diagnosed um we just put it down to that um but then the headaches were increasing and we never once thought it was brain cancer like that wasn't something that um you know that wasn't something that it's not the first thing you think not when you're that age you feel like you're invincible at that age but these headaches were really really bad and um the the depression was bad as well so I had done I think 
I just finished doing BBC Casualty and my part on it was like lots of crying. I'd been raped in it and it was like really emotional stuff. And it's hard because I can't actually watch those episodes now because of what I'm about to say. And the reason was that the night before, um, you know, the, the night before, so I'm filming, he's phoned me while I'm on set and I'm about to do these scenes where it's like really emotional. And um, he told me that he'd had to get Brooke up in the middle of the night because he didn't trust that he wouldn't take his own life. Like it was that bad. So when I see those scenes now, I'm like really crying. Like they're real tears. It was like such a good performance. I'm like, mm, yeah, it's a good performance. Um, so when I came home after that, we we talked, you know, we we always talked about depression. We always are very, very open. I would say to him, are you, are you actively thinking about killing yourself? And he wasn't. But, you know, there was that time where it was more at the forefront. So it was these things happening. And we also put it down to that he was autistic and maybe the fast-paced change of having little kids was an issue because we had been told to get him assessed and diagnosed before the kids um, because the psychiatrist had said it it can be really difficult for autistic people with all the fast pace of that. It can be quite stressful. So we thought maybe the depression and stuff is to do with that. Mm. And like, you know, and then, yeah, he had, I came back from casualty filming and he had this really bad, what he described as like an ice pick headache, phoned the ambulance, went into the hospital, nothing this time. And then we went to our GP. GP was really good. He said, next time you get one like that, let, let me know and we'll do this GP liaison thing and we'll get you in quicker so we did this next time all day all these tests nothing and I was thinking they were going to say go home it's anxiety like it was which doesn't feel like it quenches the thirst of anything because it feels like a never-ending pit of where do you go with that so we had all this and then about eight o'clock at night we're sat in this hospital bed curtains open up two doctors come in one was like training and the doctor came in and without any warning just said, I'm sorry, Mr. Blair, but we found an egg-sized tumor in your head. Uh, we'll do what we can. We'll look at brain surgery, chemo or radio. But if there's nothing else that we can do, we'll just keep you comfortable. And I was like, felt like the floor was just sinking. And I looked at Ross and his mum was with us as well. I looked at Ross and he just went, okay, what's next? And that was how he dealt with it the whole time. He kept saying, they tell me I've got, uh, I've got a brain tumor. I can't feel it. They, they were making it up. And he didn't research anything to do with cancer. He just lived his life. And I honestly think that's the reason that he didn't have the symptoms that they were expecting him to have. Because people would come to him and they would say, you know, as people do when you go through a difficult experience, you know, this is what my friend, when they had chemotherapy, it was the worst thing in the world and this, and you're going to get so sick. Anytime someone would try to say that to Ross and I was there, I would stop that immediately in its tracks. Don't you tell him his story. Don't tell him his story. You don't know who he is or what he... You don't tell somebody else their story because they will live it and they will find their feet. And that's what we did. And for three and a half years, he did brain surgeries, two brain surgeries, chemo, radio. And we just lived in the pockets of it. Like we lived in between all of that stuff. And... um. The, yeah, the, the diagnosis itself was like, it was such a shock. We, we hadn't been around cancer. Like, I think 
if you've had someone in your family have cancer before, it's less, I guess it's not less of a shock, but we hadn't been around it. So we had such little knowledge of it at all that um, I guess in some ways there was an ignorance is bliss kind of thing. Um, but also it was just such a shock. It was, you know, at every stage it was bad as well. So it wasn't like you first thing was like, is it cancer or is it just a brain tumor? I mean, just a brain tumor is never really a thing, but is the, is it, you know, cancerous? Yeah, it's cancerous. Okay, so is it one we can cure? Yeah, it's rare. It's grade four. It's normally found in children. It's normally found at the back of the head. Yours is at the front. Okay. So is it is it working after we've done the brain surgery? No, not really. Okay. So it was just like every stage was just rubbish. And my husband, Ross, would say, I'm one of a kind, he would say a lot, which I would often say, I don't think you can say that. I feel like that's something other people should say that you're one of a kind um but it was quite annoying that he was one of a kind in like a rare brain tumor mm. i just think that's quite annoying and rude of him to have produced that <laughs> so yeah so that was the di- the diagnosis itself was um headaches depression and we just didn't see we didn't see it coming you think being an autistic man uh, I mean, you think his journey through that experience was was the way he processed it, do you think it might be dif- different to mm. how a, a neurotypical might go through something so. like that? Yeah, I think it helped him because he didn't, it, it lit, I'm not joking when I say, I think people thought he was crying at home or he wasn't thinking about it unless it was impacting mm. him in, you know, obviously when you have brain surgery, you have chemo and things like that. There are times when it floors you and, and all of that, but he would just like, just going to get on with life I'm just going to live and it wasn't it, he was happier because they'd taken out the tumor that was making him depressed so all of those symptoms that he'd had before went he wasn't depressed um it was harder in some respects on me watching stuff because and this is a case for anybody who's you know watching somebody else be ill that they love you are you are seeing and hearing things they're not and you're aware of things that they're not. And in terms of our relationship, the dynamic had to change because I wasn't caring for him till the end. So that wasn't, and that was always difficult because when when he died, people would say, at least he's not in pain. And I'd think he weren't in pain and until the end. Like it, it wasn't like that. And we were, I mean, our friends would call us Rolly. His name was Ross. From the second we met Ross and, and you know, impulse, when Ross and I met, I was with somebody else and... I was living in London or Essex, London with a mortgage and a dog and I met Ross on a job and left the next day and didn't come back. Obviously, you know, impulsive kind of (laughs) behavior, but it's the best thing that I could have ever done. And, And the reason was that we connected instantly. We, from the minute we met, were direct and, you know, I didn't know anything about autism or ADHD then and why that directness was really refreshing for me. But Ross would say everything that he thought. And I don't think, I mean, he used to say, because again, he didn't know me. He didn't, he wasn't alive when I had my diagnosis. But he would say, I don't think like you could go out with anyone that's not autistic. Because he was like, I think actors just must need to be like around like autistic because they're direct. And he would offend everybody. But he didn't offend me because it was refreshing. Because if he said something that wasn't very nice, at least I knew it was how he felt in that moment. Mm. And if he said something that was nice, it wasn't it was how he felt so actually when Ross would give me a compliment which was a lot I was very much one of his autistic topics like that's not a joke I was like his 
one of the things he would gush about embarrassingly so sometimes but when he did say things he meant it like he would I mean this is a weird thing to say about your partner we would go into like a conversation with somebody and say this is my wife Holly um she's the most emotionally intelligent person you're ever going to meet <laughs> like what a weird I mean it's a nice compliment but it's an unusual one <laughs> like, she's emotionally intelligent do you like her or he would say to people do you think she's fit <laughs> he's like I feel like I've forgotten if you are or not I don't know I've got used to you <laughs> but like for me like that kind of how we were made the whole process of him being diagnosed we just dealt with it how we did everything we both worked for ourselves anyway so we both just found our route and we potted around drinking cups of tea chatting laughing and it's weird because when Ross when he had his second brain surgery so we'd been together like eight years and I remember Ross saying and it really hit me because he went it won't look enough like it won't look enough on paper because it's eight years but it's been everything and like we spent every waking minute together and not because we were like those couples who can't be apart because they're jealous like there was zero jealousy that was be who you want to be we just got on with each other so the way we dealt with it was just direct and honest and even you know, for me, going forward and people, you know, say some strange things when your husband's died, like really strange. And a lot of it's meant with really good intentions, but they don't know who, they didn't know me and Ross together and, and how brutally direct we were. There was no conversation not said. And, you know, when Ross first got diagnosed, he was telling me how I should kill him when it, like, if he got like really disabled and he couldn't do anything. And he was like, just put a pillow over my head. He was like, what I'll do is I'll blink like that if you if I want you to kill me off. And I'm like, what if you've just got a smit in your eye and you're like, no, and I'm putting a pillow over your head? He was like, and he just said, I don't want you feeding me yogurt. And mm. like, as, he's like, I don't want you feeding me yogurt. Like, I don't want that. And actually, that was really difficult for me because in the hospice, when we got to the end of life stage, that was what I was doing. And I hate it. And I found that really and really, really challenging. And one of the doctors had to talk to me about because I was like, I just, this isn't what he wants. Like, I hate it. It's not, I know he, this is not Ross. And she was like, but you have to recognize that this is a different version of him now. And this version just is okay with you being that. But it was hard for, for me because we were just so direct with everything. And I think people going forward can't really understand how I'm as direct about everything even now. And I'm like, Ross would be furious if I wasn't just living my life because he was you know he was an atheist and he didn't believe in anything else neither do I and everyone can believe what they want none of us know what is what but he would just say look I'm dead or I'm alive that's it like there's no sense to it he was like if anyone was to get it it was probably best being me because I can you know I can deal with it none of my mates could deal with this like he, he was just direct and it wasn't performative he said to me after his second or maybe his first brain surgery, he just said, look, I'm, you know, at the time he would have been like, he died when he was 32, so, you know, like 30 or something. And he'd having his surgery. And he just said, look, I've got to 30. I've done everything that I've wanted to do. I've lived my life exactly how I wanted to live it. I could get to, some people get to 100 and they can't, they can't say that. Mm. And that made me feel comfort because like he did, he came here. Yeah, he did what he wanted. Yes, he annoyed a lot of people probably because he did what he wanted. He had a go at it. And on his, like, there's, like, cards at the funeral. 
Ross said to me once, just tell him I was all right. Tell, him, tell them I was an all right bloke. That's all I want. There was no, you know, airs and grace. It's just, I was all right. And we just put that on there because that was the essence of who he was. And I think in terms of like how he dealt with all of it, it was just honest and it was black and white. Mm. It was very autistic. And I don't, he didn't ruminate over, there was no, oh, woe is me or this is unfair. He never did that. He just moved on. And the girls throughout this entire process, did they understand what was going on? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When they were little, no. I mean, really they didn't know any different because they were too young when he was diagnosed to really know any different. So and it sounds a funny thing to say, but he was six foot. So he had a scar on his head, but they couldn't often see it. <laughs> just on top of his head. So it was actually only when they were like crawling on him on a chair and they'd notice it and they might ask questions, but they didn't know any different. So I don't think for them, it was only once we got to end life stage and then having conversations with them about what was happening was, I mean, that was the worst. It was the worst. And we, when I told the girls, you know, they were six and four at the time and we'd been told that he was dying, actively dying. And Ross was, it's different with brain cancer because it's a bit like having somebody with dementia because pieces of them are going in front of your eyes. And he was at this stage, he'd had some quite severe seizures and we were told there was tumours throughout his brain. And so his behaviour was really odd. And like, you know, he'd be saying to me, go and run me a bath of gravy or something like that. And what was, you know, what was really hard was the fact that um, because he was so quirky and like unusual in how he did things because of, of being autistic, there was definitely times like near in the end where like, People weren't sure if this was Ross being Ross or it was like his brain cancer. He was, was he just, because he loved awkwardness. Like mm. he loved it when people felt uncomfortable. He just loved that feeling of like dropping something in the room and then just letting that sit because he <laughs> wasn't uncomfortable. So a lot of the time, there was times near the end where it was like, is like is this brain cancer or is he just being weird? Like the one of the nurses in the hospice came out to me and he was, the first week in the hospice, he was, he wasn't himself, but he was a, he was conscious and stuff. And the nurse came out and she went, I think I've offended him. And I went, and she was like, I'm really sorry. I think of, and I went, how? Like, how have you offended him? Like, I've never seen him be offended. Like, what do you mean? And she went, I've come in and he, she's putting like, essentially, I know they don't call it a nappy, but an adult like nappy on. And putting that on, he's, and he's, he's looked at her and went, 
why are you dressing me like a baby? Why are you dressing me like Mowgli? Like that to her. And she's like got really upset. And I'm like, I think that's just Ross. Like, I think he, that's Ross being Ross and just trying to make it uncomfortable because you're having to put, like, he wants, this is kind of humor. Like, he wants, we went to the doctors and the doctor had to put their finger up his bum. Mm. And I was in the room, they pull the curtain round, and to make it awkward as a female doctor, he's gone. This isn't cheating. <laughs> <laughs> like that was the level so like anything like that like mm. he would have loved so yeah I think it was um with the girls we yeah the, the difficulty was nearing the end in the hospice I was in the hospice the whole time with Ross so the girls went from us being there to neither of us being there and Brooke was six Tex was four Brooke was so aware like when I told her Ross was going to die I was stuttering and stumbling of how to see it and she went just see it and know what you're going to see and then we said it and there was tears and there you know but Ross was at a stage just about where he wasn't like you know barking like a dog when they were saying it he was just conscious enough that he could kind of not make it weird and that he could be part of that and then when I was in the hospice, Brooke rang me and she said, Mom, is dad going to come out of the hospice? And I've always dealt with everything, honestly, no lies, no pretend. And I said, no, he's not going to come out of the hospice, darling. And she said, I want you to come home, Mom, but I know that when you come home, it means dad's died. And I was like, yeah, it does. And before... Well, I went in the house, I actually messaged um, Jeff Brazier. I don't know if you know Jeff Brazier. He was um, the partner of Jade Goody, who was on Big Brother. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so Jeff had kindly messaged me before I told Brooke. Um, we'd met once before a TV show and, you know, similar circumstances. And it was starting to become in the press, like, that Ross was ill and stuff. And he tweeted me and said, let me give you a call and talk about the kids and you know, how to deal with the kids. And he was really, really helpful for me. Um, you know, in, in what I could expect with grieving children. It was really useful. And he had said to me, he messaged me before um, I told the girls that Ross had died. And he said, make it something nice. He said, make something nice out of it. Get balloons, get sweets, do something that doesn't make all of this like horrible. So like with that in mind, I, I went in, the kids ran up to me and were all excited to see me. And it's just like the worst feeling. And then I told them and we cried and then once they'd settled we then um we did some drawing I said should we do some drawing and we'll do some art and we sat down because the old kids love it creative stuff and I remember Brooke drew a picture of everyone in the family and she drew Ross but Ross was just away a little bit in the picture and I think that was just her whole processing of that's what had happened and Brooke was very direct and I had to message everyone and say Brooke's gonna say to you like dad's dead like she's gonna for adults it was uncomfortable mm. when he was dying as well any adult that was around them I sent a video out to every adult that was going to be around the girls and said do not tell them your version of what happens after death do not tell them that that's their choice to make they'll make that decision I've told them whatever versions of the people and they make I will go with whatever they feel comfortable with and um but I said also be aware that Brooke's gonna walk into a room and say my dad's dying and you as adults you deal with that 
that's not her job to deal with your discomfort, mm. um, which was useful. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of that stuff, it, it feels like two seconds ago and a 300 years ago, going through all of that. And I think at the time you just deal with it as it is. And for everybody else, it was easy for them to maybe pretend that Ross was somewhere else, you know, but for me, we were together all the time. So as soon as Ross got sick, it was a shift for me. Instantly, it was a shift. And it was, you know, I didn't have my mate by my side. There was no one to do the shocked face at, which we would do, you know, going through life and seeing people do weird stuff. I would spend my whole time being able to go, did that person just do that? Did that per-? Like, there was always someone there. And then to not have that was instant for me. Like, it was, it, you know, there was no pretend. We were speaking uh, <clears throat> before we started recording, and you said your grief can look different to how you might imagine grief to be um, in a situation like that. And you can sometimes disassociate it from, mm. from the situation, but then sometimes it can snap back into focus. Yeah, I think in some ways there's benefits. So I, and I've thought about this, you know, through a, a neurodivergent lens, how do we see grief? Is it different? You know, I guess we look at all aspects of our life like that. And I think there are definitely elements of that. Um, you know, as ADHD people, we have that out of sight, out of mind thing sometimes where it doesn't exist if we don't see it, which can be really awful for people sometimes because sometimes we love people a lot and if we don't see them for a bit they don't exist in our head and that feels awful and my sister will often message me and say like you've not rang me for a bit and I know that you've forgotten that I exist and that's not nice yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I, I love you and you love me so stop being horrible um so I think in some respects there are times when that will happen for from a time which sounds really not, I need to explain that well enough that people don't think I don't think about Ross because I think about Ross nearly every day. But there'll be times when I'm able to compartmentalize that and put that somewhere. And that's the benefit of my ADHD brain. The, the downside to that is then when I am then, because I'm, you know, along with ADHD comes a lot of emotional dysregulation. So when I'm sad, I'm really, really sad. And, but I come out of it very quickly and that is something I've noticed throughout my life. Like I'm sad or I'm angry or I'm, and it will be at a 10x, whatever it is. Mm. But also the recovery time's short for me. Like I'll cry my eyes out until like you think I'm probably never going to stop or I'll be really rageful. And then it's done. And I'm like, okay, it's done. Let's move on now. Something else. And I think I don't, I've never felt guilt with that in terms of grief because I know who Ross was. I know Ross would have done the same. I know Ross would be like, get yourself off the floor, no bed. Like, it, would, <laughs> like, it wouldn't have been any airs and graces mm. about it. He'd have just like... So I think there definitely is elements of that. But then, yeah, the it it's really hard to have, to have somebody that really gets your weirdness and has their own weirdness mm. to then know that that's not there because that can make you feel... I instantly... I went from feeling really comfortable in myself for the years that me and Ross were together to find in this weird space of like, nobody else would have seen it, but like a lack of confidence. And I think it was going back to you're the weird one and now it's just you on your own being weird. Mm. I get before that it was like, well, Ross is there. So he's weird and he's louder and weird. So like you look less weird. Like, and it sounds like so trite to like have it just be the word weird, mm. but like, those that stuff like felt like it had a, a place with somebody who understood it 
Um, and I'm not saying I don't have that with anybody else or anything like that, but I think that those initial stages of being pushed back out in the world, like without your mate who was there all the time, that was really weird. It was an adjustment for me and, and it kind of, yeah, there was an adjustment in terms of my own confidence, I think, with that. It sounds like you um, complemented each other incredibly well and, and Ross was did some things and you did mm. some things and when he passed and suddenly you had to do everything. Yeah. How, how did, what was going on in that, that Do you know stage? what? I, I remember as well. So when his funeral happened, I mean, I've been on TV and stuff over my life and stuff. I've, I've been lucky, I think, in that my levels of fame have been like, like little up and downs. There's been enough that's like, you know, it's given me nice opportunities, but it's not been like the levels of we see now with reality TV where mm. you go from zero to a hundred and then back down to zero. And it's re that's really, I've hated watching that happen because that it, I, you know, my modicum of fame that I've experienced, sometimes it's not, it's not always been great. When Ross died, it was in the press a lot. All of the, you know, the, the big nationals and everything. I don't know why it picked up or, you know, became such a, a big thing, but there was, just so many eyes on everything that was happening from being in the hospice to his death. And at his funeral, there was like, you know, paparazzi at the funeral. There was journalists in the, in there. And they were very, in fairness, they were very respectful and they never took pictures of the kids or anything like that. Uh, but it was a weird experience and it was a very elevated experience. There was benefits in that I never have to, had to tell anybody, but everybody was watching me everywhere I went. I mean, we went, the girl, my daughter, Texas started school, um, that just after Ross died, we went to a new school, new house, new car. Everything was new. It just so happened that way. Walking into that schoolyard, everybody staring at you, everybody like knowing everything that was going on. It was just all so elevated. Mm. And I, so the day of his funeral, you know, everybody's there. And, and I just thought to myself, and I possibly look thinking about what Jeff Brazier had said about make it good somehow for the kids, you know, make something positive somehow. And I thought, we'll, we'll go to Butlins the next day. And so I had a voucher for Butlins. I rang Butlins and they didn't have any space. And I was like, oh my God, like, just get me in. My husband's funerals today. Just get me in, like, get me. I wanted the posh seats in Butlins. I wanted a nice one. You know, if I'm going, I wanted somewhere good for me. Um, I think somebody made some calls and they were amazing. And actually did a, a podcast um, with the guy who, the, the CEO of Butlins. And I did thank him because I was like, we didn't know each other. And I was like, thank you, because they, they were amazing. Like, they put presents in the room mm. for the, the kids and everything. But I went to Butlins the next day and everyone around me was freaking out, like, um, should we come? Like, we need to be there. And I was like, no, like, I need to work out what this looks like. I need to process how I'm going to do this. And it's not like I wasn't doing that before because I was doing, once Ross got diagnosed, I'm not stupid. We were not foolish enough to not know how bad this was that we always knew there was a chance he would die he was giving it his best shot and he would say I'll, I'm gonna give it my best shot at this but you know let's be realistic here this is bad this is you know if, if you're looking for cure a, a cure for brain cancer is like looking for a needle in a haystack Ross's type of brain cancer no one was looking for the needle so your chances of surviving that are slim mm. to none like we knew that so I had been mentally preparing for that the reality is very different, but I had. So I think starting with that, like, I just thought, no, I'm just going to go and do it. And yeah, it was hard. And yeah, I cried in Butlins, but I think probably lots of people might cry in Butlins. I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes it's difficult anyway. Um, but we just, 
I've done I've done it with honesty and with the girls I've always been honest and I'm an imperfect person I'm an imperfect parent and I have not got it right the whole time I've done my very best and the one thing I, they know they can trust me I will never lie to them and that means they they know everything and they're smart as anything um, they know way too much and it makes everybody every other adult feel uncomfortable but my kids can trust me and that's what they needed. They needed to be able to rely on me. And I have just always said, we deal with it how we deal with it. And some days everyone's sad, some days no one's sad, some days you're laughing, they're sad. And we have to try and find ways to respect each other with where we're at with stuff. And we've always talked about Ross. There's never, it's never been weird. And, you know, we were talking earlier um, about, um, you know, gallows humor and how we've dealt with it. We, we've got horrible, brutal humor. It's awful it makes everyone who hasn't experienced that kind of grief feel uncomfortable but we just laugh about things and we I think humor has been a big part of it and their dad's legacy being any person that has ever met him will have a story where they go oh you'll not believe what he did though and he did this so that's nice for the girls to know that their dad was you know he made his mark on this earth like and I say to them you know your dad is in you like your dad is literally part of you your genetics and he's part of my story and he's part of everything that you have here he's part of all of that and I think that's you know it's not easy being a single parent that's hard it's really hard and there are times when I've you know with the girls grieving where you know I've got one kid kicking off in anger one kid screaming and crying and I'm one person and everyone will obviously go and help like just give us a call and you know, at 10 o'clock at night when you've got that happen, it's been happening for, you know, three hours. Mm. You don't want to call people and say, because they can't do anything. Like, I know it sounds, people want to help, but sometimes they can't do anything. And also in terms of me processing and everything, I kept just thinking everyone wants to help. I'm like, you can't help. Like, you can't change it. So I have to work out. Like, it didn't give me, Everyone deals with grief differently, but it wouldn't have given me comfort for everyone to just be like sort of around me. And and I found it hard mm. to like even let people help. You know, I was having to like consciously think of like um, jobs for people to do so that they would feel okay with it. And I'm like, but I wasn't bothered. Like mm. I, I can get on with stuff, which is really, it's a bit of a, you know, hyper independent trait, but I've, always been able to do things on my own and I think that just that support it may probably helped me out Mm. in lots of ways that I've been able to um but I I won't pretend it's an easy job like it's not it's hard and you know ADHD adds to that fuel sometimes Mm. because there's a lot of emotion emotional dysregulation involved in that which feels a bit embarrassing as an adult to you know to have like I think that can be challenging you got diagnosed with ADHD in 2020 yeah what, what was it that made you go and seek assessment in the end yeah um so there was I mean I became aware of neurodivergence because of Ross and autism and stuff and as I said there was a time when I kind of thought am I have I got autism and then quite quickly ruled it out um and I didn't know anything about ADHD over the years so twice it happened I couldn't tell you when it was but in my adult life prior to that twice because of the work that I do which is in in mental health outside of acting um and I'm obsessed with our brains I'm around a lot of psychiatrists and around a lot of people that talk about that stuff and twice in my life people have said 
have you got ADHD? And I took it as an accusation. <laughs> I was like, how very rude. Because we didn't know, did we? Like until very recently, we didn't really have the understanding of how it just was for people. And so when people would say it to me, I would, I just thought, I, I think it was twice it happened. I just thought, how rude, what a rude thing to say to somebody. I, I assumed it was because I was doing something that was irritating. Mm. I was, you know, chatting too much or moving around too much or disruptive in some way. So I guess that was a seed planted in the back of my head. One of my clients had, has it, had ADHD. So one, I work, you know, as a self-development coach and I was working with her and there was a lot of synergy and you were, you know, like attracts like anyway, a lot of the time in your work. And so she would be say, saying things to me and then she had a lot of knowledge in ADHD because she'd been diagnosed for years. And it kind of, again, probably planted another seed in my head of that's interesting. Like that's literally me. And then when we were exploring with my oldest, we didn't know whether she was ADHD, autistic, whether it was all of those things. The more I was learning, we would be going through with psychiatrists, we'd be going through lists of things and they'd be saying, so does she do this? And I'd be going, yeah. And they'd be like, yeah, okay, tick. And I'm like, why is that weird? So, and they, and then we kept going through things. And I'm like, but that's not weird, is it? And they were like, that's not, that's a, what we call atypical. I'm like, and the more I started to research, and then obviously I was looking at both camps. Is it ADHD mm. for Brooke? Is it autism? Is it neither? Is it anxiety? I'm doing so much research and everything I was reading, I'm like, I think this is me. Like, I, this, everything, everything fits in this. And then obviously because of ADHD, then you like deep dive and then you just hyper-focus on looking at everything. Um, and then I stopped doing it because then I became like worried that would I like bias something? And I just thought, you know, what, I just need to get assessed. Lucky, luckily at the time, you know, it wasn't where the waiting lists are horrendous. I still had to go privately. And I also couldn't wait because I have ADHD and I can't wait. I wanted now. I want to know the answer immediately. So I was like, well, I just need to find like immediately when I can get this done. And, and I didn't have too long a waiting list. Um and yeah, I, the the hardest thing about an ADHD diagnosis for me was that there was a lot of form filling and a lot of process. Like, and I, I mean, if ever there was a way to diagnose, and no, this is not the reason to, but I can't log into the system where my psychiatrist. Like, I I never remember the password. I think they should look at like three hundred times of changing your password and see that they should take a box <laughs> already. She can't get in ever. Why? Why is she not written it down? Like. That should be like already they mm. should be thinking mm, before you get in. So I had the assessment um, and a few times with the psychiatrist. I mean, he, he said it to me immediately. And it's so funny, isn't it? Because you get the assessment and even though you know it and you know what your symptoms are because you're telling them it, when you see it written down, you're really offended. Like how rude. Like, no, no I didn't do that. Like, <laughs> did I do that? You know, saying like she doesn't sit, like she wouldn't sit still and she didn't stop talking and she... Like, sounds it's very rude of you to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. That's why you're there. So yeah, I mean, I, I just I think as well because I was looking at my daughter's assessment and stuff as well. I I felt like I was doing her a disservice for me not to explore that for mm. myself. Like I was saying, well, you should do it, but not me. I don't need to look at myself at all. And all the work that I do is about you know your brain and and how can you live a life that feels really good. And I felt like I was missing a piece there. And when I was diagnosed. There was a grieving process that a lot experienced where I went back on things and thought, if I'd known, then that might not have happened mm. and I might not have made that mistake and I might not have felt like that. 
But then I just quickly thought, right, well, then now I work with this framework and then I find new ways of living my life and I work with my brain and not against it anymore. And I went through this, I guess people call it this unmasking process where, and I was, you know, we were talking earlier, but I was saying it's like, I felt like other people may have felt like I was being performative with ADHD. They might have thought, oh, look, she's acting more ADHD now when actually the opposite was true mm. in that no longer was I this internal anxious, like I had this anxiety that I was not passing. I wasn't, you know, doing the right thing. And I was holding all this anxiety in. I stopped doing that over the last few years. And I just thought, no, I'm just going to really advocate for myself. And I'm going to admit, I'm going to admit, because that's what it felt like. I'm going to admit what I do and how I live mm. and actually stop pretending that it's anything different because I think that won't tick a box and my anxiety around that lessened. Everybody else had to deal with more because I would advocate for myself and I would not people please in the mm. same way that I would before. Um, and it's funny because I, I did start to, we talked about this prior to this, but I did take, um, I started taking medication last year and I take it periodically um, because it does have side effects that don't always work for me. Um, in terms of it stops my appetite, which obviously is not ideal. But I went back to the psychiatrist. You do your you know, like assessment to make sure the medication's okay for you and all that, and you have to have checkups. And I said, you know, I'm I'm really experiencing like it really works well for me. It's really good. Like this is really helpful. I've these symptoms have, have lessened, and this one's nearly gone. The one thing that it doesn't change at all is that I still talk constantly. And he just went. I just feel like that's a problem for other people. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it is. Yes, you're right. Yeah, like high-fiving the psychiatrist. I'm like, yeah, that's not my problem. So that feels like a them mm. problem, doesn't it? Um, but it has been useful um, to have that diagnosis and kind of just, again, it's just understanding yourself, isn't it? Mm. Understanding who you are and working with your brain. And now I just find weird ways around things and I don't, like even things like, you know, sitting, I don't know, it's an obvious one, but, there are days when I can't just sit and do my work and I know that what would be better for me is if I was on the floor and I was like sort of doing the work on the floor and allowing my brain to flip from one thought to the other. Sometimes there's no point fighting that and in the past I'd have been like trying to drag my brain to do the one task whereas now when I can feel I'm having a particularly bouncy brained day I just think okay well we're just going to have to do it like that. We're going to have to be over here doing this and then we're going to go mm. over here and we're doing this and then and I'm going to be all right with it. Whereas there would have been so much shame and judgment before. Of yeah, why, why can't it just be proper? Yeah, I mean, trying to force us into to do stuff to the sort of neurotypical standards doesn't doesn't often end well. And actually, if you just feel that impulse and that urge to, to get up and move or lie on the floor in, in your case, yeah. then actually our outcomes are, are often significantly better. Yeah, I'm fascinated to hear about this teaspoon because I asked mm. one of my guests what's what an, an item that most represents ADHD in their life, and you said a teaspoon. Yeah, um, I actually have a t little teaspoon. I'll pass it it's to you. It's perfect. Like I just check it though to make sure it's the right type. Yeah, it's, that's fine. See, what I love about this teaspoon is like sort of slightly pointed edge. It's not too heavy. That would bother me if it was too heavy a teaspoon. Um, so I didn't. <laughs> so I was trying to think of like you know, there's lots of things that you could say represent ADHD for me. I mean, I have a file on my phone which is broken things just things I take pictures of the things I break now so I can do a nice reel on Instagram or on TikTok or whatever of all of the things I've broken over the last year because it's constant and um, so it could have been that I nearly said just a mm. box of broken things um 
But the teaspoon one is something I didn't even realize was weird until I became a parent. And then they go to other people's houses and then they become aware of things that you do that are weird. So because when they're little, a little teaspoon for their food is fine, right? That's the size of a child's spoon. So it's fine. So, but then they would go to other people's and they were like, they have big, I mean, I say big, you might think it's a normal size, but like a breakfast, what you would eat your breakfast with, like a, what are they called? I don't even know what the, the big spoons are called. Um, but like a, it, uh, to like a tablespoon. Yeah, a tablespoon. Yeah. Right, so a tablespoon. Um, so they love that. And they were, girls would come home and they'd be like, oh, they have tea. And I'm like, and they were like, they were looked at weird because they were wanting a teaspoon. And then I started to realize, oh, I only have a teaspoon. That to me is a serving spoon. Mm. That one you just said. I'm not. T- and the reason is, I don't want to touch. Like, it clanks on your teeth. I don't understand why we're putting big. Like, I don't like that experience. That's a horrid experience for me. And so I've always just. And, and plus, I think you can savor things more with the little teaspoon. So the joy that I'm experiencing when I'm eating something, I want it to last forever that joy so I think like eating it with a teaspoon just feels nicer and but then I became aware that it was like a bit weird and then I started asking people around like mm. my sister and like what like you know trying to pretend it wasn't like weird like, so what do you like eat with and they're like like if you were using a spoon what one and they're like a tablespoon and I'm like what that's that feels and I don't know why it feels like hell but I think it's like a sensory thing of like it touched my teeth but then I did my sister sent me a link of somebody else talking about this and apparently it is a neurodivergent thing. So I have no personality or anything about me is everything is a symptom. <laughs> everything is a symptom. So apparently other people feel the same. But I think the reason I said it as well is that for me, this represents, there's so many things in my life where in the past, and this would be one of them, people will say, you're doing that to look quirky. You're doing that on purpose. And when I was masking, I would, go yeah yeah just you know me (laughs) and internally I'd be like I'm an alien I'm a weirdo and there's Mm. something wrong with me and I don't really like I really don't get embarrassed like which is obviously like another thing I'm not aware I'm not aware in the same way of like what people might be thinking I'm just thinking I'll just do what feels good so like an example would be like taking my hot water bottle on the school run with a cup of tea and like going on school run like that in my in my cup of tea in like a mug mm. not like in a one of them ones that I brought today like a just a mug and like friends of mine will say why are you being weird like that's really weird and I'm like it's not that weird though because I'm cold so I brought the hot water bottle and I want to drink out of the mug that I want to drink out of which feels nicer why do I have to put it in the thing I don't want to drink out of so there's so many of those little things throughout where people thought I was performing or they would think I was doing it for attention as the other one. You're doing that for attention. And internally, I would be thinking, I'm not. Is that weird? Like, and there's so many of those throughout my life. And they're not like major things and like life changing things. But I think when you get that messaging throughout your whole life of you're doing that for attention, you're attention seeking and you internally are thinking, I didn't even know that was weird. Is it? Is everyone else not doing that? Mm. It just feels like an odd thing. But now I fully just, if I'm being honest, I also really love, what's the long Sunday, like Sunday version, like a long... I love ice creams. Yeah. yeah. They're my favorite. I don't know why. Because then my friends are like, why do you need to be that far from... I'm like, I don't know. It's just like, feels more fun. 
feels more fun. And I did see somebody once have like iridescent versions of those spoons. And my friends will now get me nice teaspoons with like fancy ends on them mm. and stuff because they now know I like them. Um, but I just feel like, yeah, I, all of these little messaging that we get as ADHD people, now I just embrace it. I'm not, even in restaurants, like they'll bring you your food out and they'll mm. give me a big old ta- tablespoon. I'm like, absolutely not, my friend. You go and find yeah. you go and find Now you've got the confidence to, to Now I've got the confidence. It. Whereas yeah. before I'd have just like been mm. like carefully trying to get it like not touch my teeth. And my husband used to say, and it, it must be a sensory thing with the like eating, because he would he got me one, I don't even know what they're called, where they chop your food into you push the thing down and it cuts things into cubes, like salad stuff. And oh yeah. I don't know what they're called. But he got me one of them because he he noticed that when I like make a salad for myself, I cube it. <laughs> He's like, you make everything into small tiny bits and I'm like do I and now I'm aware of it like I I think there's something about things not Mm. being in my teeth and like the clanking of that sound I I don't know I think I I can't I don't like big I definitely don't like big spoons I have to have Mm. a fork because I can't stand the food residue that gets left behind Mm. on spoons especially when someone's eating like a very clunky thing like cheesecake like a dessert. Yeah, see, so that's, puts, that's like, a for a cheesecake. Like, I mean, I, I can see what you're saying. Them tiny forks. Yeah, it gives me the heebie-jeebies mm. when someone pulls out like a big spoon and, it, and it's got loads of food mm. stuck on the spoon. I, that, Just I, a big, like... For that like, reason, I have to have a fork. Shoveling it in I'm, their mouth like that. I can't eat with someone if they're... If it's like something that's light, like spaghetti bolognese, but if it's something heavy yeah. and very thick that's going to leave residue on the spoon, mm. I can't look at it. It gives me the heebie-jeebies. And how something's presented bothers me as well. Like, how food is plated to me, like, mm. will bother me. Like, I like things in a... Like, and this probably sounds more autistic. And maybe it's because I've lived with autistic people as well. Because Ross was very particular. And Brooke is extremely particular about food stuff and, and how things go and things. I mean, my mom came around and she ordered an Indian takeaway. And normally, how I present it is very nice. I get a dopamine hit out of the creativity of everything. So I mm. find it in everything. So how I present food, how I do everything is like, if I can bring in creativity, it's great. My my mom just chucked all of the food into a bowl like that, the curry and brought it out to my daughter, who's autistic. And she just went, what the hell is that? What the hell? Mm. She just looked at me, horrified. She was horrified because she just prefers it in a certain way. But I think like even like cups and, you know, th- how I, the things I have in the house, it like they need to be a certain like feeling and way. Mm. And, and I think I'm lucky because I've always worked for myself. I didn't realize, and this is actually when I was doing the assessment for ADHD, some of the stuff like the sensory stuff, I didn't realize I had forgotten a lot of the the childhood stuff because other than being when I'm acting and, you know, wearing a costume, nobody tells me what to do. Nobody tells me what to wear. So if I actually look at my world, it's completely just molded into how I like Mm. to do things. So one, I'm on my own a lot because I work for myself. So nobody's seeing a lot of the weird stuff that I do to kind of top up the the bits, you know, the the non-neurotypical stuff. And I I'm comfy all the time because I'm just doing what I want to do. So it's um do you know what you just bringing that out? One of the other things that I really, really love is things that are the wrong size. So maybe that's to do with this as well. That's true. This is a miniature washing machine. Love I that. Like, yeah. I, like tiny things or like things like the mm. massive lollies that you get on holiday. Love that. Don't know yeah. why. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's just the wrong size. Well, like so. mini toy cars. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. that like that's fantastic. Yeah. Love that. This is washing machine of woes, and I asked okay. my community to actually it's it, it, it's uh, ask them to submit their 
their woes on on grief actually because I thought you were a great person to ask Perfect. and uh, it's quite a long one okay. I wanted to read it to you I'll and, pop um, a little spoon on there and, and see what you say I read it and I thought this would be in- really interesting to hear mm. your opinion on um, someone seeking any advice experienced ADHDs have in dealing with grief I lost one of my closest friends in the summer this year it's been nearly six months now and people seem to have made a certain amount of peace with it I however can't seem to Most days, I don't think about my friend much or their death much, but when something reminds me of them, it makes me very sad. I think I instinctively try to push those feelings away, but I'm trying to do better and sit with them and feel them. My problem is object permanence. When I don't see things related to my friend or posts about their death, I can almost forget they're dead. Out of sight, out of mind. Then I get a reminder and it's like I'm finding out all over again. Difficult for me to get out of bed or do anything. Worth... Noting, I have been seeing a counsellor, not specialising in grief. Basically, they said, what I'm going through isn't uncommon and is normal, but I feel like the issue, it's just a cycle and I never improve. Anyone who's dealt with grief, what should I be doing to help me accept my friend's death and how do I regulate my feelings? I just feel so lost. That's really tough. Did they say when, how long ago it was? It was in the summer this yeah. year. So my, you know, and I'm certainly not a specialist in grief or ADHD, just lived experience. But um, what because I, like you, get a lot of messages, especially from people who've experienced grief um, and also those that have ADHD, I have really learned that grief is so individual. And even though we will have common things, you know, within neurodivergence that come up, I think the one thing that supported me through it was acceptance and direct uh wording with things as well because it was almost like my brain couldn't compute that ross was dead that didn't make sense so i never said ross has passed away or any of the flowery comfortable language i would say ross is dead ross died because i needed to say it to hear it Mm. to understand it but the one thing i said to myself when when he was dying it and then when he died was i'm just gonna allow what comes up to come up for me and I'm not going to judge it or pass you know try to force myself through it I'm not going to you know force myself to sit down and look at photographs if I you know kind of push myself through the grief process whatever that looks like and I've really understood that it's not linear you know it's not there's no stages of grief that they could happen in one sitting in one fell swoop in one day there's there's highs and there's grief moments I think you know, what the person has experienced. And I can understand the object impermanence does sometimes mean that it is, as I said, it it compartmentalizes somewhere else. Um, And it sounds like they're doing the right things in terms of like allowing it to be, because I definitely, you know, will have that. There'll be something that happens. And often it's things like, you know, finding Ross's handwriting on something. And it's so raw and real in him that can be really upsetting just allow it to be upsetting because it is sad it's sad that their friend has died that's really sad and you know you hear people say this in grief a lot but you know grief is the price you pay for love we and as ADHD people we do things at full out so when we love someone we love them like we fully love them if you've got a friend if anyone you know people watching have got a friend who has ADHD if they like you they really like you and they will forget you exist as well. And that doesn't actually, in their minds, there's no... In fact, I was saying this to my friend recently. I was saying, you know, um, if I don't hear from you, like, assume I really like you. Like, don't assume anything's changed. Because I will say if something's changed. Like, 
I've got anxious friends who, if I don't speak to them, they're like, she hates me. And I'm like, no, I don't. I just forgot you existed for a minute. <laughs> but I think um, allowing, no one wants to hear this in grief, but time does have some element of healing things. No one wants to hear it. Certainly not when it was just in the summer. And so I, I, that won't land probably, but there are elements of it that will be easier, elements that will be harder. For me now, you know, I, there, I still cry about Ross. I cried in my loft the other day because I was sorting through things and it, you, you grieve not just the person, but a time that you, you know, you had ideas about how things were going to go. You, you grieve a future that wasn't there. But I do think that we have, over time, we, we give more space for enjoying thinking about the person. You know, when I can talk to you about Ross and there's so much fun in it because we, we had that fun and that joy and we were so lucky I remind myself of that a lot. Like, I'm so lucky to have had that. I'd do it all again, even with the pain that, it has, that I've gone through because I was so lucky to have had that. And to have, have a friend that you are grieving, how lucky. Like, it doesn't feel like that right now, but hope, you know, over time, and it's, it's still so fresh, over time, you'll, you'll likely get to a, a point where you will probably still have those ADHD moments where you've kind of forgotten they existed. And maybe when you remember there's a level of guilt because that can come up, oh, I didn't think about them. Or, But remember that the reason that you feel that pang of pain and that, that sadness is because they were, they were a person that impacted you. And one of the other things that really helps me in grief is knowing that, see, I don't believe in, as I say, I don't believe in an afterlife, but energy is infinite. That's science. So energy is infinite. Ross's energy still is permeating somewhere right whether that's in you know the stories and the memories that he made the in his daughters in who I am who you know the person that has experienced that and so if you can try to think that you know they can try to think of their friend impacted on this planet the fact that they're so sad means they take their friend with them in this journey there you know people talk about moving forward in grief and some of People that I work will say they find they have a hard time with that because they feel like that means they're leaving their person behind, they're mm. forgetting them in some way. But I try to encourage them to not see it like that, that you're taking them with you. Whatever I do, the fact that we are even having this conversation, I'm taking Ross into this conversation. Ross is with me in all that I do and, and all that I am. Yes, I will move forward in other areas of my life where Ross physically isn't here, but he literally can't help but be part of the story mm. because he is. And that person's friend always will be part of their story, their journey. And in those moments when, you know, it hits you like a ton of bricks again, those will get easier. They'll still, they'll still pang and they'll hurt. And sometimes it will just hit you when there's no sense to grief like that. And you'll find, you know, there'll be different moments in your life where you think, I wish they were here and I wish they'd seen this. And of course just let those moments be what they are. Like mm. allow those moments to be sad moments, but also remind yourself of, wow, wasn't it lucky to have them and, and talk about them as well. You know, I was, when I'm working with, you know, I, I have my membership, the Happy Me Project, and where a lot of people will come because like attracts like that have similar experiences to me. And I always say to people when they mention that they're grieving or someone's just died and whatever, and I'll say, what was their name? You know, like tell me about them because Sometimes with grief, people get really weird and they don't, they think if I mention the person, I'm going to make them more sad. And it's like, well, no, the, the fact that they're dead is what's sad. Like you mention it, if anything, avoiding talking about them makes me feel sad because it makes me feel like we've, as, as that person said, that everyone's just dealt with it. I would say as well, 
people probably aren't. And, and one of the things I was really conscious of with my daughters was that because of how I am, that I would quickly do different things and I would appear to just move on. Mm. Sometimes there would be moments when I'd compartmentalize it and, and, and not moved on, but I just was doing something else. I distracted myself. There was times when I, and I'm really conscious of letting them know that I've been sad. Like I tell them I cried about dad today. And I say that because I want them to know it's okay to still feel that, to still do that, for that to hit you sometimes, for you to say, I'm feeling like I'm going through a bit of grief at the moment. And you know that will be, that will be probably mm. forever on and off. And I don't want that to sound like it's painful the whole time because it's not. But the price we pay for love is that there will be moments in our life when we will reflect back and be sad about that. And, you know, I'm just sending that person lots of love because it, it's a, it's, it's an awful process. It's painful. But just trying to remind themselves of the joy that that person gave to their life and how lucky they were to have such a good friend. You know, that's, it's not a consolation, but it's, <clears throat> it's something to hold on to till you get to the next stage in your life. Mm. Um, but it's, it's tough, isn't it? All of that stuff. It's so tough. No, it's powerful. And I'm, yeah, thank, I'm sure that person will be incredibly grateful for, for that advice. We have a closing tradition, Holly, on this mm -hmm. podcast. And, uh, Bit of a fun question, and that's to ask, what's the most impulsive thing you've ever done as, as an ADHD person? Uh, well, I guess, I mean, leaving my boyfriend was uh, definitely fairly yeah. impulsive. That one, getting married and not telling anyone, that was pretty, I mean, that was fairly impulsive, but we kind of decided to do it a little bit before. Um, buying a dog when I was living, that was not ideal. I decided I wanted to buy an American Bulldog. I was living in a rented accommodation with my friends and my friend's parent. They owned the house. Didn't ask them. <laughs> Didn't mention it. Just decided that I wanted to get a dog. Mm. And then the added element to that is that sometimes I lack that sense of danger. At times, there's just... So I many of us do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what, what danger? I just go there. So I, just, I found it on like this was years ago like gum tree or mm. something and was like right i'm gonna bring 500 quid in cash across somewhere in the middle of like some rough estate in london don't know where it was right but i'm like just gonna go there without anyone knowing where i was going 500 and go into someone's house it's really really rough council house with like no windows on it and that i'm just going in there that's fine that's totally normal buy a dog um take that dog home everyone like that doesn't seem like a good idea you haven't asked anybody um and obviously that caused loads of problems in the end my parents ended up with the dog a lovely dog freddie it was a great dog um and my dad still brings it up he's like remember when you got that dog <laughs> that i had to have forever thanks for that so yeah pro probably that all getting married without telling anyone or breaking up with my boyfriend of six years who I had a mortgage and a dog with getting the mega bus to Coventry and never coming back that probably and that's where my husband was from um yeah probably those things yeah, all, probably... all very classic ADHD behaviors yeah but it's only when you look back and you think oh I can see why everybody got cross yeah but I didn't see it at the time yeah. hey ho we, we I was gonna say we live we learn we don't we literally don't learn I impulsively bought a dog I Did bought you? a French bulldog the, day, yeah, the same day I decided to get one and, and, and less than 24 hours later I had a French bulldog in my so front room. <laughs> I'm terrified I'm going to do it. I'm not like, because my daughters want a dog so bad mm. 
and I'm, I am i can't even look at them because I'm, I'm almost like have to pretend they're not there because I really would like a dog, but I, I can't look after a dog right now. It would, be, it would be the straw that broke the camel's back. There's no, I'm just about keeping these kids alive. <laughs> no one need a dog in the, in the mix of this. Uh, but I'm, I'm constantly like, like I impuls, I'm impulsively bought fish to try and stop myself buying a dog. Mm. They're so boring. I hated them so much. I was, it's horrible to say I was glad they died, but I was glad they died. <laughs> I hated them. No one wanted, I had to clean that. Oh, all of it was awful. Uh, but that was to stop me mm. buying a dog because I'm constantly like on this edge of, and like tattoos and stuff. Do you have tattoos? Yeah, I got one. Yeah. yeah. See, I haven't got any. And people always think that's really weird. I mean, I've got loads of piercings, mm. but people think that's weird because it's quite classically ADHD to get. But I battle every day. That it will be, or it will be, I will walk in and everything will be tight. Like, I, I don't think there's, like, there's all or nothing. Mm. I feel like this is the year for it, though. I walked um, past a, ta- a, ta- a piercing shop in Oxford about 15 mm. years ago, and I walked out with a stud coming out of my lip. Just, for, just, just, literally so, in the just to see what it feels yeah, like. Yeah, but then it got infected, and it was horrible. My, my, my teeth kept on catching on it, and it kept on getting pulled through oh. the hole. Horrendous. Did you like the look of it, or no? No, I look like a pillock. <laughs> But is that, is, do you think it's that sometimes, like, I just want to see what that feels like? Because I see that a lot. Like, I once as a mm. kid stapled my hand mm. to see what it would feel like to staple my hand with a staple gun. How did, how did it feel? Awful. <laughs> I would really not rec- not recommend. Like, really not recommend it. I just thought it was, I, I don't, what a weird thing to think. But it was mm. just to see what would happen if, like, I stapled my fingers. And I think maybe with, like, like piercings, like, I had, like, six in one day because I was, like, in fact, it was celebrating Ross's birthday or a death anniversary. It was one of them, like, anniversary. I was like, let's go and get six piercings. That feels like a good idea to mm. do today. Um, but, yeah, the, I think that's very classically ADHD, isn't it? So I feel like 2024 might be the year of tattoos. I keep, like, stopping myself just because I'm always worried that I'm just going to get, like, something really weird and then really regret it because that, that could happen. Because your opinion changed, like, your... The, you just want difference all the time. So I feel like I might get bored of it being yeah. on me. And then Tattoo what? removal laser people, they love ADHDs. Yeah, yeah. For that reason, it's good business. Mm, just a cycle. Yeah, yeah. It's a constant cycle. <laughs> if we're back, <laughs> got another one that I don't want. Yeah. Ollie, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 